0: Of god the glory we also want to express our appreciation for our wonderful string instruments and our musicians and choirs thank them thank you so much thank you so we had vacation uh bible school power up you see all of this here i didn't grow up playing a lot of video games i don't know about if you, if you did but apparently i was typecast as an italian american immigrant named luigi and uh, and Lindsay was playing Mario, my, my brother, long-lost brother. And uh, look, at, look at this. This is just terrible. This is so undignified. So the children were told if they raised, uh, collected 300 pounds of school supplies, then Pastor Pete would get slimed. And this, this slop was made of instant pudding. Yeah, okay, Bodwell, I hear your woos. This, uh, it was made of instant pudding, uh, milk. Applesauce and green dye, and so imagine on Thursday when these children, little kids, when they hear, "Well, kids, we only have 200 pounds so far," and they race home, "We need to get school supplies. We need school supplies!" Like parents freaking out, like, "What for? What? What's going on?" For, for that, for that to happen. Okay, so, um, but it was for a great cause and and very very fun, and uh, it's a joy. Uh, to serve with our whole ministry, and especially last week with our children's ministry. Ever, it was all hands on deck. Uh, to have everyone a part of that was a special, special thing. We have a long history of uh, in, incredible investment in our, in our children, in our youth, and in our families. And one of those people that made a huge investment, I have the privilege of inviting to read scripture this morning. Faye, will you please come? Let's stand together as Faye reads Matthew chapter 20. Verses 1 to 16, somebody hand her a microphone. It's on, it should be.
1: The parable of the workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, just before telling this story to the disciples, Jesus did something that shocked them. He said goodbye to a potential new member of their team, a rich, young ruler. So wealth, position, influence, just the kind of guy that the 12 wanted to recruit to their team. And Jesus said, "Bye bye And it shocked them. Because Jesus knew that this man, his first love, would always be his money and his social class. And it's likes of those that Jesus would say would not come into the kingdom. In fact, he, he turned to the 12 and he said, it is very hard for rich people like that to enter the kingdom of God. He said, quote, It's easier, you know this line, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. And that shocked them. See, it was commonplace to believe then, really as it is now, that, that wealth was God's reward for being good. You're good at something. You've accomplished something. You're going to be rewarded. Or also in that context, and in some of our contexts, if you're religious, it's a reward from God. But being poor, that's a punishment. If you're poor, maybe you just didn't work hard enough. You know, sometimes you got to dance with the pants you wore to the prom, right? Right? To earn that spot in the kingdom, you've got to work for it. And there's got to be some reward for the things that you do for God, Right? So when Jesus said the opposite to his crew, they were taken aback. They were confused. and So they asked him, this is all in chapter 19, a little prelude. They asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, 1926, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now that did not sit well with them. See, it cost the disciples a lot to follow Jesus. They left their careers, yeah. They left their homes. They thought they had committed to the true religion, so they earned the kingdom. Maybe plus interest. And so who is it that steps up to set the record straight and maybe correct Jesus? Who's who's it going to be? Do we know? Simon Peter, of course. Always putting his foot in his mouth but he's going to speak up for the rest of the crew. He comes forward and says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, he was saying, what special reward can we expect now that we've given everything up to follow you? Isn't that fair? And so Jesus tells Peter and the rest that his kingdom is, would not turn on religion or, or common sense thinking of the day. It would be an upside-down kingdom. It would be backwards and the other direction of anything that they could expect. It wasn't about rank or class or religion. He says in verse 30 of that chapter, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Remember, that's how the story Ended. ended. And so then he proceeds in chapter 20 to talk about workers hired to work in a vineyard. This parable is only found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. And it's relevant today because we all have an innate sense of fairness. And we all have, especially in our culture, an innate sense of Entitlement and fairness and entitlement have to be put in their proper place by the Lord Jesus, and that's why this story is so relevant. Parents, how many of you can say, I I know we could say, how many times do our kids uh, uh, fight over what's fair? It's not fair, they're getting more than me. You ever have this kind of conversation? Here's a little uh, cue now. We, Cheryl, and I just have one, so it's easy. Like, we just spoiled Jonathan. No, not really. But if you have more than one, here's how you, you settle this argument about fairness. you got two kids. Okay, kids, it's dessert time. The first kid gets to serve the dessert, and the second kid gets to choose. That's fair, right? Think about it. have got to even it all out. When I was growing up in my home, I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers that are six and eight years older than I am. So they were alive and watching TV when we landed on the moon. And so that also makes me six and eight years older I was the love child. The parents weren't expecting that. You can Google that if you're not sure what that that means. (laughs) So my dad is a first-generation Italian-American, first one in his family of a blue-collar working family to go uh, to university. And truth be told, he was a little hard on my brothers, maybe a lot hard on my oldest brother, a little easier on the next one. And so he drove into them this work ethic and drive and grit. And then I came along. And so I can remember uh, a time when uh, my brothers were coming back, one brother coming back from medical school, the oldest one coming back from Tulane Medical School, the other brother returning from university, studying to be an electrical engineer. And they come home for a summer break, and I'm not there yet. They're wondering where I am. And I come cruising up in my dad's company car. And my brother's like, What? Dad would never let us drive the car, let alone the company car. How, how, how is that possible? Like, well, I don't know. He just, he just gave me the keys. This is, truly, this is what the kind of things that would happen. And then they said, "No, wait a second. We got home last night. And you weren't home. It was like 10 o'clock. Don't you have a curfew? Like, no curfew. <laughs> what? No curfew. And then they said, "No, wait a second. You know, we worked. Uh, they had a paper route growing up and then they worked through college. My brother joined the army to pay for medical school. Uh, He said, wait a second, you don't have a job? I said, yeah, I do. I'm a summer camp leader at at church. Like, you don't have a job job. (laughs) Who's putting gas in the tank? Dad. So fairness, you know, it's just, you have to choose one or the other. So, but, but from childhood, we have this idea of fairness. We're taught to, To play fair, Uh, we're talking about being fair-minded. In this parable, Jesus seems to suggest that our Heavenly Father uh, doesn't always deal with His children in the same way that seems fair. That rewards in heaven aren't earned based on long hours or hard work, but solely on the basis of God's good, sovereign, redeeming grace. At the heart of the gospel is not a message about fairness, but of grace and love. Because at the heart of the gospel is a message of God sending His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment for sin due to me and to you and to the world because we couldn't possibly redeem ourselves. And that this is the greatest act of love, 1 John 4, 9. This is the gospel. It isn't fair, is it? Life isn't fair. When we grow up, we learn that lesson. But you know, it wasn't fair that Jesus, who is perfect in every way, would give up heaven to come and die on a cross for us. That's not fair. It's not fair that he had to pay that price for you and for me. That he wouldn't have had to send Jesus if he was being fair. So we say, you know, God, can't you just be more fair? I don't want God to be fair. If he was fair, Jesus wouldn't have come. If God was fair, meaning he gave to me what I truly deserve, he wouldn't pick me up after I failed him time and time again. No, the gospel is not about being fair. Life is terribly unfair. It's about grace. With fairness, we get nothing that lasts. But with grace and love, we get Jesus. The reality is we aren't owed anything by God, but we owe him a debt that we can never pay. And that's what this story is really all about. And that's a message that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples then and now. See, Jesus was seeing something coming out of his disciples, out of Peter and the rest, and you and me, uh, a complaining coveting, comparing spirit that has no place in his kingdom. And so that's why he tells a story. Okay, so let's get into it. A vineyard owner. He goes out and hires workers five different times in one day. And they come and work at different times during the day, but they all get paid the same wage. A denarius, which would be a, a great pay for an honest day's work. You work one day, You earn a denarius, you're set, you're good for that day. Notice the ending of the story if you're looking at the text with me. It it ends with the same line Jesus had just said previously to the disciples. The last will be first and the first will be last. So that's how we know this is connected, right? Chapter 19 is followed by chapter 20 and and so on and so on. But, But we don't hear the complaining employee's response, do we? It sort of just sort of ends, and it's open to interpretation. In the same way, the the story of the prodigal son and the father at the end of the story is pleading with his older son to come in to forgive his younger brother who's been blessed, to, to not be crossed, to not be coveting and comparing. Just come in and celebrate this brother of yours who was lost and is now found, and the story just ends. We don't know his response. We don't know the response of these workers either. I believe Jesus was hanging there in the air for us to figure out how would we respond. Now, the, the, the vineyard uh, needs these extra workers for some reason. We don't know. The text doesn't say it. We don't want to read too much into it. Maybe there was pruning that had to be done. Maybe it was harvest time. I like to think that it was harvest time, but, but who knows? I can remember growing up and going with my parents to Home Depot, and there would be workers out uh, out front, immigrant workers waiting for somebody to, to hire them. Do you remember this? Is this? Someone told me this still happens. Does this still happen at Home Depot? People just standing around waiting, you know, like, I'll take three, you know, da, 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 hop in. That's kind of what's happening here. But, so that's not unusual even, even here in our region. But what is unusual is notice who's doing the hiring. It's the owner of the vineyard. Later in the story, uh, Matthew changes it and calls him Lord master in the story so imagine this how unusual it would be a man who has a staff he has a steward but the owner himself goes to do the hiring imagine those vineyards out in walla walla who, who you, know, you own a vineyard are you going to go yourself down to home depot to hire no you just kick back right in the mansion so it's very unusual and it's unusual he would have to go out so many times. I mean, does he not have his act together? Why would he have to hire five different times in the same day? Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at the first scene. The first scene is the owner of the vineyard goes, to, goes out, and he, he calls a couple of workers and offers them a sta- the standard wage of one denarius. So there's a covenant made. It's a verbal contract. Work for me for the day. Here's going to be your pay, and the the workers uh, accept his offer, and they head off to work a full day. They know they're going to have a a fine pay day, and who knows, maybe they'll be hired back the next day. That's at 6 a.m. in the morning. Halfway through the morning, around 9 a.m., the story says that the owner returns to the market, and he finds other unemployed men standing. What are they doing? Eager for work. They're just standing around. They're doing nothing, it says. They're waiting. They're waiting. And the owner makes a second selection. It doesn't say how much he'll pay him, does it? There's no negotiation. He just hires them, and and he only says, look what it says, quote, I'll pay you whatever is right or fair. And so the men trust him. They say, oh, great. We need the job. We need work. We need to put food on the table. I saw this uh, when I went to Palestine and also to Haiti, Port au Prince. In Palestine, I visit there. Uh, there are men that would try to leave Palestine. They'd have to get up and uh, get to the gates by 4 a.m. And imagine a commute that lasts three hours working through the checkpoints to hope to get into Jerusalem to work for the day. As long as you had the right paperwork, you had to be back before sundown or you were in a world of hurt. So another trek back, many, many hours to get home. Why would you do that? To provide for your family, to put food on the table. And when I was in Haiti, Port-au-Prince, this is within a year of the earthquake. I remember driving around, and we'd see see people standing on on the corner. These weren't uh, blue-collar workers. These were uh, men and women in some tattered suits of some sort, but some of them carrying a briefcase, a sign, accountant, uh, money manager, I can help in some a lawyer, just standing out on the street corner waiting for someone to hire them. And so here they are. As the day goes on, it's starting to get hot, and the owner again walks to the market to hire more workers, and again with the promise of whatever's right. So it happens at noon, again at three, and then at the end of the day, it's 5 p.m., there's one hour left on the clock. What does he do? Why is he doing it? The only conclusion I can come to is he's doing it out of compassion. He could go that morning, 6 a.m., hire all of them, all that he needs, but he sees them time and again when he returns to the marketplace, not getting hired. So I imagine him going to the marketplace, hiring the workers that he needs, probably the most fit. The ones that stand out, going about their day, and then thinking, I wonder if all the others got hired. We go check it out. Because those men need to put food on their table. Lo and behold, they're still standing around. So it hires some more. Okay, let's go. The rest of you, I'm sure someone's going to be here eventually. I-, I see a compassion. That's why he asks that last group, what are you still doing here? They say, we're waiting to get hired. Imagine that last group, they're the most physically fit. Probably not, kind of scrawny, you're like, baby. But it's out of compassion that he hires them. That each time he'd go back and see these men standing, waiting to be hired. Five groups of workers are hired. With with the last group, and listen, we're talking about one hour before sign How long would it take to walk from a marketplace out to the vineyard, figure out what you're supposed to do? I mean, how much actual work did they do? Not very much, we can imagine. And the big moment comes when it's time to get paid. We're introduced to the steward, so there is someone else. There are other staff members present. And the owner, who's now the master, known as the master, he says to the 6 a.m. group standing there, you're going to stand here and watch as my steward pays everyone, starting with the 5 p.m. crew, a day's wage. Now, if the owner wanted to be really generous, couldn't he have, have started with the 6 a.m. group and say, here you go. Here's your pay. Thank you so much. They head off. And then the next group, hey, yeah, come here. I'm going to give you the same amount. Whoa. Keep it anonymous. Don't forget my name. You know, I love how people make anonymous donations, but they make sure everyone knows who they are. You know, just, and then so on and so forth. And so then the last group gets the same pay. Wow, that would be really special. Or they could be, he could be really great. And this is what the, uh, the spokesman says. Hey, you want to pay in reverse order? That's fine. You want to be so generous to pay these guys that only worked a fraction of an hour, a full day's wage? Fine. If you came in at 6 a.m. or 9 a.m., how much would you expect to be paid? Some multiple of that, right? But he doesn't do that. He pays them all the same amount. And when we get to the last group, the 6 a.m. group, that's the first group, they're angry. They say, this isn't Fair. fair. This isn't fair, even though it was according to the verbal contract. That's right. So why cause the trouble the master wants those who worked all day to see the grace that he's extending to the others? And so there's a representative. Funny, remember, there's someone who steps up for those that work 12 hours. Remember the scene we just had. He says, not fair, we should get more. Now, no one in this story is underpaid in the parable, right? They're all actually overpaid. Not underpaid. Because you see, of course, the guys that come in midday, three and and five, they're definitely getting overpaid. But the 6 a.m. crew, when they were hired with that contract, they expected just their little group was going to do all the work all day to get paid. And then every three hours, some more workers showed up. Some fresh bodies. They're not being underpaid. They are being overpaid. And Jesus is giving his disciples... A kingdom equation of grace, not fairness, which they resent because they believe they've earned more. And at the point, do you notice it's not about money? There's a point where it says, you have made them equal to us. Look at the three questions from the master to these disgruntled workers. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. First question, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Excuse me, that's verse 15 in the NIV. The actual literal translation is, uh, is is your eye evil because I am good? And that's a Hebrew expression about envy. You have that, that eye of envy. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He's driving at this point, about the unearnable, beautiful nature of God's grace that is all those things, but it is also unsettling. Now, the workers who complain have often in a very long time been identified as the Pharisees, religious experts in the law who kept all the laws perfectly well, and they resent the fact that Jesus is calling sinners and tax collectors into the kingdom. And that's well and good, but there's more to it than that. And again, notice the context of the story of Peter and the rest complaining to Jesus, what about us? And then the scene is followed with Jesus talking about going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. It's not fair. And then the very next scene, this is late in chapter 20, verses 20 and following, a mother's request. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, John and James, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, can you give a special seat to my two beautiful boys? So I think as much as we can say it's about Pharisees, we can point the finger to this, this poor group that gets ridiculed all the time. Maybe we should do a sermon series about the Pharisees. Really, the finger should be pointing to a, someone who claims to be a disciple. This is the first and only parable we're looking at in this series where it's not for the whole crowds to hear and then the special privilege of hearing it explained behind closed doors. Jesus told this one just for disciples who were disgruntled, who could possibly have a complaining spirit. You've made them equal to us, but we've done more. Do you ever feel the same way? That never happens in church, right? It's happened in every church I've served. I, I, it'd be pretty dangerous for me to try to point out or think of examples here where I've seen it. And I'll be honest, I haven't seen it here yet, but it's coming because it's human nature. Uh, excuse me, That, that that's... Um, that's my seat. Now in pews, I get it. If you've been sitting in the same pew since 1962, and somebody's sitting here, but we're the chairs. They're just move a chair. And as our church is growing, as God is, is bringing in that harvest, new people are here. We want to welcome you. We're going to see new people on stage. We're going to see new greeters. We're going to see people do things a little differently than the way we used to do them. We have to have a spirit that is that is open and humble and willing to be used of God. Because the gospel, the heart of the gospel, is a message of grace that humbles us. It takes away any credit on your behalf. Anything that you possibly think, well, I earned this one. I mean, definitely God's grace, but I actually made a lot of good choices in my life too. We get No credit. He gets all the credit. Here's a passage that speaks to that. Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. You can look at this on your own. This is pure grace, my friends. God chose us in Christ Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You see, it's all up to God's sovereign grace in Christ. It's all grace. The same grace that saved Simeon and Anna, who held baby Jesus in the temple, it's the same one who saved the sinner on the cross, who was minutes away from death, who cried out. And Jesus said, truly, you will be with me in paradise. Interesting note, three days later, where was Jesus? Back on earth. But he was in paradise. Jesus opens the way to heaven to believers who die today, just as he opened it up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thousands of years ago. It's all his sovereign grace. And you know what's beautiful, what's so amazing about grace? is the owner of the vineyard, the master, is still looking to hire. He's still coming to the marketplace. I'll take you, and you, and you. And coming again, and again, to hire us, to call us, to bring us to himself. God comes to where we live, and he loves us where we are. So the decision to pay all the workers the same as an act of mercy, it it represents God whose grace and love are abundant uh, and they are based upon his choosing. Just as the owner has the right to to do what he wants with his money and he asks these three questions about, about, don't I have a right to do what I want with my money? Are you having trouble with my generosity? It's the same message throughout the Gospels. It's the same message in Romans chapter 9, Verses 15 to 16. Let me read that to you. We're almost done. The Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Whether God calls someone early in life or late in life into the kingdom, the glory of salvation is his and his alone. You can't do anything to earn it or deserve it. And that's not fair, friends. That's grace. So let God be God and let him be good. And let him be who God is. And let us celebrate all of God's attributes, even the ones that are confusing, hard to understand, we have questions of. But let him be God on his own terms. Merit and ability Merit and ability are set aside in the kingdom. It's all about grace. So friends, the only people who will see the new heaven and earth and rule with Christ and enjoy Christ forever are those who are chosen by the compassionate king. And he's still choosing. And he's still coming. It is still harvest time. And so the invitation is made to you today. If you not yet give your life to Christ, to receive him, to receive his full payment for your sin, a debt that you can never pay, say, Christ, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for all the junk in my past, all the confusion and darkness in my present, all my hopes and dreams that I want that are covetous in the future. I want to lay it all before you, and I want to receive from you new life. You can do that right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the first and the last. You are the Alpha and Omega. Uh, we're standing around. And some of us know why we're standing around. We're, we're looking for work. We're looking for a calling from you. Others, Lord God, we're just standing around. We don't know why. We're just invited to come here this morning, maybe to see our kids sing in, in the, uh, uh, with the VBS. But your invitation is now here. Come. There's no more negotiation. Just take me at my word. Come and be a part of what you're doing. So God, I pray that you would would excise and kill off and remove a comparing, coveting, uh, complaining spirit within me, within us, and replace it, Lord, with the fruit of the Spirit, with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Bring out a a fruitfulness in the life of our church that we're seeing already. We're seeing it happen. Life change. Marriage is healed. People not worried so much about what they're doing, but who they're becoming. Who they're becoming in Christ. We love you, God. We love you this day. Amen.